guys. I'd just like to uh, start off this podcast by saying that I didn't know we were going to film, so my makeup crew had to just do a quick touch-up job instead of the full, typical makeup project. I knew we were going to film, so as always, I look stunning. Absolutely stunning. I think that adjective is not strong enough for the way you look. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. You. This is uh, No Shave November. No Shave November. So this is the entirety of November for Nick. This is the 15th? Yep. Yeah, so uh, if you, you can look on... I don't know where I'm before you. before we make jokes, maybe we should do the official introduction. Ah, welcome to Blacklisted Marks. My name is Nick Stumphauser. I'm Spencer Field, and we're back today to discuss part two of I believe we called this "And We Have Killed Him." I think that was the, the title. Oh, that's nice. Yes, good job. Thank you. Well named. Thank you. So uh, we are going to continue discussing. I don't know why I'm looking at the camera. I think we just look at each other because when okay. I'm watching Joe Rogan's podcast, he we just talk to each other, kind of like how we usually do. we pretend that they're not there. Got it. Um, and so we're going to continue talking today about uh, God is dead, he remains dead, we have killed him, the parable of the madman. Yes. And I believe last week we got to, we unpacked it a little bit, we talked about the quote itself, mm-hmm. um, our opinions on whether or not he was triumphant or sad, and then some of the implications, but I think the big thing that we left off on was that you said that uh, the the God is dead statement was not the most important or interesting statement out of that whole parable. And this is where we cue Spencer Googling up the actual statement to continue the conversation. Sounds good. Feel free to Chromecast that if you'd like. Yeah, we're cool and high tech. Yeah, I could punch in and post and we could read some blurry pixels oh, on a screen. Awesome. I won't um, do that. That's too much effort. Do you remember the title of that? The Parable of the Mad. That one. Yes. Do you remember that? Anyway, back to uh, back to my beard. Yep. You can see Spencer's beard well, okay, let's, on camera. Back to Nick's beard. It, I was gonna get there. Yeah. Okay, got it. It's more like the, the your dryer exploded. Put the on your What is it? The fifteenth? Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is fifteen days of pituitary failure. <laughs> <laughs> pituitary failure. Yes. Not follicle dysfunction. No. 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 I just I have no testosterone in my body. Oh, drat. Yeah. So, uh, do you have it up? Yeah, I'm working on being able to defend my comment. Gotcha. Uh, maybe. Did I really say that? Yeah. I okay. mean, you can redact it if you'd like. No, I won't redact it. I'll stand by what past Spencer said. Right. You have to. You have to fall on your sword. Is that what it is? Yeah. If we're gonna fall on a sword, this seems like a good sword to fall on. Yeah. Like uh, sticks and stones. Let's see here. <laughs> Yeah, okay, here we go. This is, this is coming back to me. Um, so I'll just maybe read the second paragraph here uh, to provide context, because not everybody may have listened. So um, the second paragraph reads, The man then jumped into the mist and pierced them with his eyes. Uh, Whether is God, he cried, I tell you we have killed him, you and I, all of us are murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the seas who gave us the sponge to wipe away the eternal horizon. What where, what were we doing when we unchained the earth from the sun? Where is it now moving? Where is it mo- moving to? Away from all the suns, we have plunged continuously backwards, sideways, forwards, in all directions. Is there still any up or down? Are we not s- staying as 
though an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is it not night? Is not night continually close, continually closing in on us? Do we not need the light of lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? God's to decomposing. God is dead. God remains dead. We have killed him. Okay. I, I'm now fully loaded for both guns ready um, okay. to defend this. So we had this conversation. I'm not sure where it ended. Uh, when I read this parable, I don't think that at, that this parable um, was announcing an event in history that happened that man had killed God. Rather, it was realizing a trend which had continued. And if we think that God never existed, then what we're really saying is that the principle of God um, was killed off from a societal perspective. Uh, so I would say, the reason I'd say that that is not the most stunning statement in the parable is twofold. First, it's untrue. Um, the concept of God in our society continues strong um, in almost every major... Can I say this? I think I can say this. In every major society, a concept of God or gods, um, something divine, continues strong. Maybe some Asiatic countries, that's not as true. No, Sweden. Um, Sweden and Norway is uh, Islamic, but Sweden is primarily atheistic. It's something like an... Okay, so in many countries... <laughs> Maybe I need one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good. So in many countries, this still continues strong um, into the, as a part of our society. In a, uh, I'm not going to go there. Um, the second thought I would have is that uh, as God may never have existed other than an idea, that this was uh, a statement rather of an individual than a society. So first I'd say that it wasn't actually true. And second, that even if it was true, it didn't have that much of an impact um, because it was all done on the personal level. So I think a lot of these other commentaries, like uh, what is the ramifications of that, how does that affect us, and how do we view our relationship with that, is more important um, than the original statement. And it's also more personal. So I think what he was saying, yeah, uh, I, I would definitely agree with you that you know the idea of God isn't gone. We have mm -hmm. not killed it. It's still prevalent obviously, except for Sweden. Uh, but from a societal standpoint, the God hypothesis, because mm -hmm. I, I can't remember if it was Dawkins or somebody mentioned that um, religion is a scientific hypothesis. It is a, this is how we think the world operates because of X, Y, and Z. This mm -hmm. is the cause and effect. And they're, they're hypothesis was supernatural and, yeah. and it is uh, a demonstrably failed hypothesis in a lot of the ways that it purports to be true mm -hmm. today um, and I think that in this parable that's sort of what he was saying um, because to me it speaks to me more on a personal level as the the, the revelation sort of hits you of, of atheism and nihilism mm -hmm. and however much truth you think that they have and when that hits you, it does feel like the earth is unchanged and you're moving away from all sources of, of warmth mm -hmm. and that, you know, you're being shaken in all directions. And so, to me, it does seem more of like a personal commentary. Like, guys, I just realized that I don't need this deity to explain anything that happens in mm -hmm. my life. What do I do? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I also think it's it's interesting to see the other citizens of this magical town that the madman is part of uh, because they're so uninterested. And I think that's a lot of the... I have so many people who I know that are... Um, just they just don't care. Apathetic about the, the yeah, they're very apathetic. Yeah. And so and you might tell them like God doesn't exist mm -hmm. and that's like, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Like I don't think you get it. Like when you die, nothing happens. And yeah. they're like, okay, but did you catch the game last night? Yeah. Just like ah. And I I almost envy those people because uh, there is a, there is an amount of bliss to that apathy. Mm -hmm. Um. But it's like once you're red pilled. And I think we talked about this last week. Yeah. Which is the term that I had to get caught up on. But yeah. Yeah. Once you're red pilled, you can't. Like, unsee that. You can't unsee behind the curtain and yeah. keep walking around Oz. Okay, so I... There's two thoughts I have going, which gives me our conversation. First, I do think I have met people who have been red-pilled. Okay. Like, dealt... Like, had these, you know, um, really difficult decisions about how do I move forward in life? How do I see life? Is there truth? Is there anything ethical or unethical? How do I live as a human? From where do I draw direction? Or do I create my own direction? And if I create my own direction... And it's found this, really the search for meaning and purpose. Um, and so I, I know several people kind of went down that path and at one point in time or another just said, like, I can't do this or I won't do this. And they essentially, like, I don't know that they hit rewind, but they just hit, like, override button. Yeah. And they accepted one religion or another. And if you have, a, like, a strong conversation with them, you can see that, right. like, they've essentially, like, erected a force field around yeah. this belief system, and it's an impenetrable field. Because it's too painful. Um, yeah, I think... And it's also anti-evolution. I don't know that it's as much painful as it is difficult. So I think for some people, it... I think this is just the way you see it. For some people, it creates a lot of emotional suffering. Um, I know for me, that's created emotional suffering. Right. But I think for me... The emotional suffering is a significant part, but the larger part is this creates an intellectual problem and a problem which doesn't have a solution to it, but also demands a solution. Right. And that constant that constant demand of needing a solution and not having a solution sucks up a ridiculous amount right. of emotional um, and psychological energy. It's just a black hole. Yeah. And so I can really understand why both from an emotional perspective somebody would create a, like a protective barrier but also from like a functioning as a human perspective, like yeah. I want to pursue my career, I want to pursue relationships, I want to pursue my financial success, I want to pursue developing a strong community. I've got shit to do, I can't worry about Friedrich Nietzsche yeah. and his depressing books. Yeah, and so for me, um, and this is descriptive, not prescriptive, like right. certainly there are like negative emotional ramifications that I have to deal with. Um, but if I could get rid of one, the emotional ramifications or the... I don't even, like, the ontological ramifications. I would get rid of the ontological ramifications. I can deal with the emotion side Ontological of being... The, how, the study, ontology is the study of being human. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to figure out what the ramifications of that philosophical process right. are. Now, I think I'm trying to remember back to our conversation. I don't know if we had gone here or not, but I think this could be an interesting place to go. And I think we've demonstrated our difference on this in the past um, in regard to whether or not this was a good thing. So... Is the death of God a, or the perceived death of God, a yeah. positive thing for our society or our world, or is it a negative thing? A couple answers to that. You could say the it's irrelevant answer because apparently it's done nothing. You 
know, from a statistics perspective, mm -hmm. 90 whatever percent of citizens of planet Earth, this pale blue dot, still attribute, you know, their life or the universe or something to a deity. Mm -hmm. So Nietzsche saying God is dead hasn't done much to society. He was also post-enlightenment. And that was very much the, that was to me the, like the true death of God when we supplanted the religious hypothesis for the scientific method. Mm -hmm. um, that was, in my opinion, the real death of, God, death of God. And I think Nietzsche kind of just came along a little bit late and proclaimed it to this village of mm -hmm. apathetic individuals. But then you could also go the Jordan Peterson route and talk about how Atheism goes hand in hand with cultural Marxism, which goes hand in hand with a destruction of a society. Mm -hmm. And you know me and how stubborn I am, and to say, you know, when somebody says, well, well, Hitler was an atheist, well, Mao was an atheist, and I'll fight that to the death, saying that that had nothing to do with them killing hundreds of millions of people. Mm -hmm. But Jordan Peterson comes along, and he actually draws a, like an astounding connection with when you remove God, it's not oh, you're not a Catholic, or you don't believe in Allah, it's more along the lines of you are removing metaphysical, Jungian, um, human archetypes. You are tearing down the metaphysics, the ontology of what it means to be a human, and in its place, there comes corruption. And so he, talk, he's, he gives an absolutely fascinating breakdown of the origin of religion itself, and that it came from dominance hierarchies, that it came from... Uh, basically naturally selecting traits that became this meta-hero, like um, the, the person of Jesus has a, a multiplicity of traits mm -hmm. that uh, we aspire to have in like our leader, in our um, in the alpha male, in the, the, the best possible version of a human. Mm -hmm. You see this in, in chimpanzees and in lobsters and, and, and. You see this all over uh, the 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 tree of life. And so he talks about how from there comes these archetypes that are ingrained in us. This is why three-act structure stories with heroes who go through these specific things mm -hmm. resonate with us because it's on a genetic level. And so institutions or societies or governments that have removed um, religion, they've probably done it like, you know, Lenin when he and Stalin, when they when they would you know destroy Catholic churches, they were probably looking at this as this is competition to our power. We don't think it's true. We don't give a shit about you. Take away your church. But what they didn't realize is what they were taking away with it is all of these archetypes and all of these things that resonate with the people, mm -hmm. and it's then replaced with an intense amount of corruption. Right. So I think if the death of God is true, don't say anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then go the other way. Is a religious institution um, or a religious state um, or a religious world better than an irreligious world or a religious world? Um, and I think that's an interesting question because you know we can talk about all of the negatives and all of the tragedies as a result of religion. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, if you had those magic buttons to control what the world believed, you know, would you say everyone is this religion or everyone is atheist? Yeah. I don't know, and I really don't want that control board <laughs> over here. Delegate that responsibility yes. to somebody else. So, uh, like a thought which comes to, to my head is as like we both interact with other people, and we both have our friend groups which are overlap and separate. 
we have the opportunity on an ongoing basis to have conversations and to red pill people right. on, a, on a regular God basis. Is God is dead. God is dead. God is dead. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Oh, dang, he jumped off a bridge. Um, <laughs> um, on, a, on an ongoing basis to do that, and every time we choose to or not to do that, we're making an active choice. So, right. uh, And I think like there are parts of this where it's obviously on an individual basis, um, of how do you want to go about that process? I think at one of our podcasts you said, um, if there's an 80-year-old woman who deeply believes and God is on her deathbed, that's not something which I'm going to do right. to her. But then, again, there's times where um, moving, like having that deep conversation with somebody is a really important process. So I guess it's a two-part question. Um, first, how do you, in your mind, try to balance out who do I red yeah. pill and who do I not? And second, if you believe that truth is valuable right. and you believe that this is the truth, how do you hold that in contention um, with something else? Do you just believe this maybe isn't as true as you think it is or do you believe that truth is less important than something right. else's? So how do you work through that, that mental equation? Great question. I think it's interesting because I was just thinking about this and I was talking about it with my girlfriend. We have a mutual friend who um, is very intelligent. I would put him on the level of Spencer intelligence. And <laughs> so he has a pretty low IQ. It's, it's like 45 or something. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He's, he's, I figured out what a banana was the other day. I was very impressed with myself. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good good work. Did you, you open it, too? No. Uh, that's stage two. Minimum of okay. 65 IQ to be able to open a banana. <laughs> so, but you know, he's, he's a very rational individual. He uh, He's a, a calculus teacher and, mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. Um, and very Catholic, and he's also part of the, because he's uh, younger, I believe he's 25, he's in the um, the charismatic movement of the Catholic Church. Interesting. So, yeah, which is, you don't usually see those hand-in-hand hand no. in Catholicism. Yeah, but there is usually anti- Right. It, it is, uh, there is a charismatic movement of the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. um, very similar to the Baptist Catholic movement of the Protestant. Um, Probably more like the Pentecostals. Yeah, I yeah. think Baptist is probably a little too extreme. I'm, I'm uh, no, Baptist is usually not too extreme. Oh, okay. Yeah, Pentecostal, sure. Yeah, so there's, like, there's just a lot of singing and hand raising and crying and fainting. And yeah, more Pentecostals. Pentecostal. Like Baptist will get a solid sway and a clap going, uh, but nobody's going to be fainting. Okay. Yeah. So no. we were talking, and I I, I, I was thinking about this with him because I believe there is. I love it when people say there's two types of people in this world, because obviously there's not. But if I were to break up uh, people um, into categories of who should be red pilled and who red pilled and who should not be, mm-hmm. um, if two people were standing on the bridge, the, the, you know, the edge of a bridge, and they were both religious, and mm-hmm. you red pilled both of them, one type of person is going to jump off the bridge in despair. The other person is going to stand there for a few years, mm-hmm. and eventually step down, walk down the bridge, and continue with their life. Mm-hmm. And the only way I would ever red pill somebody is if I knew that they would be the person that would not fall into that despair. And so I do value truth, but I also value human well-being, and I don't think that those two traits coincide. That's really interesting. So time. you would subject your value of truth to where how you value human beings. Right. Okay, so I want to... I don't know if this is a good question. I just want to continue a little yeah, bit yeah, there, along that line. Yeah. So that's why I think, because he is the type of person who I believe would have an uh, enhanced life yep. 
a better life and a more fulfilled life, knowing that this is all he has and whatnot, I think he would be much more happy and much more fulfilled. Uh, secondly, that statement of human well-being is, you know, greater than sign truth mm -hmm. is only in some cases. For example, if you are uh, Donald Trump or Mike Pence or somebody, and you are a fundamentalist Muslim or mm -hmm. Christian or Jew, and you think that you know female genital mutilation should be for all citizens, mm -hmm. I'm going to try my hardest to red pill you because it's no longer just you and your happy-go-lucky life. Right. You're it's affecting others. You're now. affecting millions of people. Yeah. So that's that's you know where I draw the line. But I don't really talk to Mike Pence on a daily basis. It's usually like coffee every month. So. <laughs> <laughs> you have to understand exactly where you're coming from. Exactly. So what were you ferociously typing? Uh, that was not ferocious typing. There was no smoke coming from my fingers. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I was looking for... I was typing something, but before we move there, let me see if I can find this. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. No. Uh, I know. Shocker. So, <laughs> side note, last week I didn't listen to any podcasts, any NPR, any audiobooks. I went into full withdrawal symptoms. <laughs> like, there was white wall staring, shaking, and not knowing what to do with my life. Full on withdrawal symptoms. Oh, nice. It was awesome. Not. And um, so I was listening to a podcast. I won't take the time to find it, but it was a palliative care doctor and a palliative nice. care um, doctors helping somebody near that end of life transition into being dead. And uh, he had this really interesting commentary on how he saw the world. And he was actually a Hindu. And he said that oftentimes we look at the medical profession and we expect that their role, their goal is to continue hum human life. He goes, that's the goal, which is laid out in the Hippocratic Oath. That's what we teach in medical school. It's continue life as long as possible. Right. That's your goal. He said, I don't see my role as a physician that way. I see my role as a physician is continuing human well-being, which is not the same as continuing human life. He goes, I think that everybody has a minimum level of um, quality of life that they're looking for and, and keeping them alive past that minimum quality of life is actually not the role of a doctor to do. Interesting. So he says, it's my role during these conversations to get a clear definition of what that level of minimum quality of life is. Is that being able to communicate with your family? Is that being able to stay at home? Is that being able to be mentally cognizant? Breathe on your own. Yeah, breathe on your own. What does that look like for you? Um, and when we, if and when we get to a place where you are, like, you're going to die, it's just a matter of when. Right. When we pass that line, what is the correct response to do? What would you like me to do? And it was interesting um, to see that because I think that is, like, playing into your decision-making process a little bit in that there's this minimum quality of life and that the process of human well-being is connected to that. So here's where that ties back in. So... Um, I don't know how to say this out loud. It makes a lot of sense in my head, but okay. there's four-dimensional shapes in my head, too. So um, we'll see how, this, see how this works. So you believe that red-pilling or providing the truth to somebody should be subjected to the process of human well-being and that the well-being of that individual human, as well as the social ramifications, should be considered before red-pilling somebody. Is that right. a fair... To, to the best of your knowledge. To the best of your knowledge. Because you don't know yeah. how everyone's going to respond. Okay, so we can have that... that that first level. Now, that, however, is based on the idea that human well-being is valuable, that we want to ensure that both an from an individual perspective and a societal perspective, we're continuing well-being. Right. And that's based on something, hopefully. 
Yeah. And if that's based on something, you're probably basing that on some sort of truth that you hold. Right. And so we almost create this circular cycle, which is I hold this truth of human value, I also hold this truth of what is really real, and we're almost taking two truths, and we have some sparks between them. Because uh, at one side, we're like, this is true, it is valuable to communicate truth to others, and at the same time we say, it will harm a human, human well-being, and we don't want to do that. So these two truths are almost coming into friction with one another, and it, it at least in... Right. My mental image of this. And that, I think, produces this really interesting um, concept of we're taking truths and they're competing against each other, but if they are both true, um, then there's some like underlying connection between these things. So it's almost like a rattlesnake trying to bite its stinging tail. Um, do you see that same type of... Con okay, maybe that's just within my mental... Processes. I, you were close, and then I think you took a left turn. Yeah, you added a little bit of ingredients and made something different. Okay. Um, so it is, assumedly, it mm -hmm. is true that you know everything involved the red pill is true. Okay, so you know God doesn't exist. Nothing happens, and you die. You have no free will. Let's just say that's like your typical three essential oils and vitamins inside yeah. of this red pill. Um, then it is also true that human well-being is of value. Mm -hmm. I did not say, nor do I think I would argue, that sharing all things that are true with everybody at all times is of value. And so I yeah. think you have to pick between the two. Here's an example. Um, I, I use this example uh, when, when discussing religious fundamentalism or moral fundamentalism. So if you're a Coptic Christian in Syria and ISIS has uh, had the misfortune of invading your homeland mm -hmm. and they take you, your wife, and your daughter into mm -hmm. the street and they're pouring gasoline on you, um, it is very clear to you and probably to your wife what is about to happen to mm -hmm. you. But do you lean down and tell your seven-year-old daughter it will be okay? It will be okay? Or do you say you're going to hate everything about the next 15 minutes, mm -hmm. you know? What do you say? Now, obviously, you could red pill her, right? That is true. Mm -hmm. But I would not say that it is valuable to provide that truth to her. I would say that mm -hmm. her, you know, her well-being as a human is of far greater mm -hmm. value. And so you would lean down and you'd say, it will be okay. Mm -hmm. um, in the same way, whether it's the 80-year-old grandma on her deathbed or it's the two people on the bridge, you, you just have to look at, at their life situations. To me, it also... Here's an ironic statement. It's almost like playing God. It's like we have the truth, assumedly, and we're choosing who to give to people. That makes two assumptions. One, that we're right, mm -hmm. and two, that we have the right to, to affect people's lives with this truth. Um, I do a lot of weightlifting coaching. Not professionally. I don't get paid for it, but I just have a passion for it. And uh, a lot of times, diet, nutrition, and weightlifting... Um, there's it's just fraught with misconceptions and mm -hmm. people think you need to have one gram of protein per pound of body weight and so they'll go out and they'll buy these big drums of whey protein powder and they'll down 200 grams of protein a day mm -hmm. what they don't know is they're putting setting themselves up for kidney failure and they're pissing out 70 grams of that protein because they don't need it mm -hmm. um, and I'll tell them this and they'll just be astonished you know I've just affected their life and now they have to change their life situation and that's, or ignore you or ignore yeah. me which so often happens but I have I have given them that information and 
you know, do with it what you please. But that's a lot less impactful than saying, like, when you die, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. Everything that you are currently pursuing in your life is entirely worthless from a cosmic perspective. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it's like, you know, we don't have the fortune of having the good news. We have, like, the kind of sad, shitty news. Mm -hmm. <laughs> our, our pamphlet is, is pretty miserable. <laughs> they, um, you know, it's not great marketing behind exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's harder to give this reason to live. <laughs> no one, no one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. What do you think? Yeah, so, like, the, as you say this, and I don't know that we're going to come to, like, a synthesis on this, but in my head, like, I still see that ongoing contradiction. Um, and maybe that's just something I experience emotionally instead of in a reason standpoint. I just move it into the reason standpoint. But when I see this truth of, like, it is valuable to tell the truth to people. And I see this this flip side of, like, it is valuable to continue human well-being. And those things don't always line up. That truth-telling and well-being are not always in line with each other. Um, and I see that both of those are based off of the same basic principle. Uh, that, to me, produces conflict. And Which basic principle? The basic principle... Um, Because I don't see them as, as logically dissonant. So, like, if I was to make this a a graphical image, I would say, like, which, oh, here, watch this break. Um, is <laughs> now that, it's time for Spencer's <laughs> analogies. <laughs> Strapping kids will make no sense. <laughs> okay, so, if we had this, like, ball, all right, so this, we, had, we had this ball, and this ball was, like, a ball of truth. So, like, in my head, this is blue, and it has the word truth written on it, all okay. right? So we have... Um, think of uh, this Superman worked for the, the newspaper where Lois Lane worked and they had the, the globe yes. with the words circling it. So that's the right. we have our ball of truth, all right? So kind of <laughs> off of our ball of truth. Welcome back to Judge Judy's divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Judge Judy Smalls claims court was bad enough, but divorce court, divorce court yes. We, we did have to clean some, some broken glass and some fruit off the walls. Right. Um, but we did get there. We salvaged one orange. Yeah, we did. So... It wasn't uh, that rotten, actually. I think before, pardon the interruption, uh, before we were, we were discussing about the uses of discrimination, I was discussing the, the indiscriminateness of thought and how that is a detriment. And Spencer, I believe off-hair, delved down this path of talking about how discrimination is a, is a mental tool that is used and often leads to intolerance, and then intolerance is not good. Do we want to go back through that path? Because I'll go back through it. I just don't know that it's as interesting as some of the other things we've been talking about. Well, I think it is important. Okay, here we go. Because... Buckle up, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for Spencer's Analogy Round 2. Same time, same place, different analogy. Actually, there's no analogy here. So, I view discrimination as an intellectual tool used on an ongoing basis. It's used every day to make basic decisions like, what do I want to have for breakfast? What do I want to wear? How do I want to drive to work? That the process of discriminating is a necessary tool for human intellectual existence. Yeah. Now, when discrimination becomes intolerance, we enter a new category. So, like, let's say I have the choice of both an orange and an apple for breakfast, and I choose the orange. I've discriminated against the apple, um, which is fine, but if I become intolerant of apples, saying, like, apples are the bane on our society, and the only reason President Trump was elected was because of apples, 
like then we've moved into category of intolerance. Now, when intolerance enters the picture, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. There's behaviors which should not be tolerated. There are actions which uh, are thought processes. Oh, I don't know about that, which may or may not want to be tolerated. I'm not going to commit on that one. Um, and there are certainly, yeah, we're stick with actions which may or may not want to be tolerated. And as soon as you enter the category of intolerance, it doesn't mean that instantly any type of intolerance is bad. Um, intolerance of murder or intolerance of dehumanizing activities could be seen as correctly intolerant. But I think alarm bells should start going off and say, okay, we're in the category of intolerance now. Now we need to have a deeper perspective and uh, examine this on a deeper level and really decide what should be tolerated and, and what shouldn't be tolerated. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that what I'm encouraging is not a lack of intolerance or an encouraging of intolerance, but saying that when we become intolerant, we need to become mindful and have a better filtration system in place. Yes and no. So in my foray into the unhinged regressive left, I found uh, people who are in trying to instantiate socialism and Marxism and communism into the United States. Did I tell you went to the socialist meetup of Ann Arbor? No. Oh, I didn't. That's, oh, that's, we should definitely talk about that. That was a lot of fun. Um, so it's, it's kind of amazing that there are people who, um, mostly millennials, who have had no you know, actual real-world interaction with socialist regimes. Dumb millennials. Useless for nothing. Yeah, said the 19-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're actually a millennial. What's your no, year? no, I was ninety-eight. So yeah. technically, I'm. So you can just bash my generation. Woo! Um, but they. This was really disgusting. Is uh, on one of the the banners, the posters that they were carrying at one of these rallies was, um, you know, no Trump, no KKK, um, no fascism, and it was like pro NAMBLA. Mm -hmm. And for the audience that doesn't know, I'm just smiling out for like I know what NAMBLA right. is. Right? Yeah, that's the North American Man Boy Love Association. That's a, a pro pedophilia organization. organization. Yeah. And that to me is where like this indiscriminateness of thought. Like mm -hmm. I am intolerant of pedophilia. Mm -hmm. My apologies. Sorry, guys. And and I am intolerant of Sharia law and intolerant of anti-gay sentiments mm -hmm. in a million different places. And so. It's ironic, too, because the left is intolerant of intolerant people. You know, they're saying, like, I am intolerant of you not tolerating gays, mm -hmm. and I'm going to shut you down. Mm -hmm. And so they unwittingly, or wittingly, uh, are being hypocrites, and they are discriminating and saying, you are wrong to believe this, we are right to believe this. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a necessity for all of these things. But I think we should try, well, I try and bring this full circle to the back to the God is dead. Please. Uh, and, and I think how it relates is this idea of if it's true, do we have the responsibility or the right to share that truth with people? Good question. And I think what's, what's interesting to me is the difference between somebody who is a Christian mm -hmm. and whose mission, or maybe Jehovah's Witness, mm -hmm. and whose mission in life is to share the good news and that's it, that's what their goal is, mm -hmm. is to promulgate this information to everybody indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that there is that, oh, goodbye. Goodbye. It's interesting that there is 
not the same amount of um, liberty, perhaps, or frivolity given to people who have less happy news. And I personally don't find, you know, Christian views to be happy or joy-giving. There's mm-hmm. some stuff in there that's great, and there's some stuff in there that's not great, but... Um, you know, our news is a lot more depressing. And I think it's depressing, but only superficially. Um, I think nihilism, because it's nothingness, isn't anything. You know, it's not depressing and it's not joyful. Um, it merely is. Our responses to it uh, are, if you check out this full circle, our responses okay. to it are what color it, whatever color it may be, whether it's, you know, depressing or joyful. And you mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast that most times people find uh, this rabbit hole much too overwhelming and end up just ascribing themselves to a religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why I think you and I are so taken by Buddhism, because it's very much um, a letting go. It is, um, you know, you are not trying to grasp at the, the stream, you are not trying to hold anything into being you're acknowledging the the decomposition of all things you know the change and the fluctuation and the death of all things and I think that's sort of where Buddhism has its appeal to many 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 atheists and nihilists like Sam Harris (laughs) (laughs) not a podcast without a callback who you know is the the pinnacle of no supernaturalism, and yet still holds the majority of the tenets of Buddhism to be true, because not because it's a cure, but because it's very much compatible. You know, it's like it's not like you're you're drinking away the pain with this religion. It is very much compatible with both things are true at the same time. From, mm-hmm. from you know, disregarding the reincarnation and whatnot. Yeah, the wheel of death and life. I think I agree with us that. Okay, so rapid fire time. Okay. All right. So to end the podcast, we've been um, moving in. We've been talking about what Nietzsche has been talking about in the parable of the madman. Uh, we spent the last podcast really diving into each um, kind of paragraph and looking at some important parts. We've kicked off this one um, by my conversation with whether or not I thought it was the most important comment, as well as the impacts um, of that statement and whether or not we should continue to Red Pill Society and how we work off of that. So if we were to take the most important questions we've asked so far, um, if you pick two, I'll pick two, and then summarize that information down, I think that would be a phenomenal way to end our time. I I think we should have, one of my questions has to do with Red Pilling, and I think I probably should have led our Blacklisted series with this, Mm -hmm. and that is... If you are the person standing on the bridge who once red pills will jump off, please mm-hmm. stop listening. We're eight episodes, nine episodes in, so sorry if you've jumped. Uh, but I think the good question to ask yourself is, what would your response be if this were true? Aristotle talks about how a true intellectual is somebody who can internalize and ingest an idea without necessarily holding it to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you listen to what we're saying and you hear these things about determinism and atheism and nihilism and whatnot, um, will that affect you? And do you have an effect on other people that would diminish their well-being? I think those would be because you have a responsibility to those around you as well. Mm-hmm. 
So even if you take the proverbial jump off the bridge and end up in despair, yeah, how does that negatively affect those around you? Do you have a family? Do you have a career? Mm -hmm. Are you doing philanthropic work? X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So those would be the questions that I would ask or propose to most people who, not necessarily listeners to this podcast, but the people that binge watch Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan podcasts mm -hmm. and whatnot. Yeah, I think that's a good question to ask. I think that question of priorities is good. I think like the only spin I would take off of that is, <clears throat> and this I think is a question asked um, outside of this, this context but has a large impact on it, saying like, what do you want your life to be made of? Um, over wow. the course of your, you know, 80, 90, 100 years, what do you want your life to stand for or not stand for? How do you want to see the world impacted? And maybe th these types of conversations are, um, in, are part of that movement, right. but maybe they're not. Um, and I don't know that everybody who has a large impact on our society or even those that I want to follow... Um, are deeply engaged in these types of conversations. Right. So if this is your battle to fight, your war to win, then you know, join the bandwagon, let's move forward together. But if this is not how you want to leave the world, is this if this is not your, you know, your place in this ecosystem, if you don't inhabit this biome, we don't hold you in any less regard. We don't think that you're less beings. We think that you're just part of another biome and we want to be there to support and help and yeah. grow you. So I would say that, yeah, figure out wh where your biome is in life, what you want your life to stand for, and then if this is part of that conversation, engage, and if it's not, don't feel obligated to. Um, okay, so Spencer, in one or two sentences. <laughs> I have to exit here shortly. What is your mission statement? What is your choice on how to live? Yeah, um, I don't know. I There's a principle which... It, I find deeply impactful, and it's uh, a principle laid out, um, it's a Hebrew term, and it's tiko unum, and the idea is that uh, the word translates to rebuild, and the concept is that at one point in time we lived in a perfect world, then it broke, and our job is to rebuild it, and oftentimes the analogy put forward is a beautiful tapestry which was once beautiful but then broke. And it is the role of each individual to find their place within the tapestry and reweave society to move back towards what that perfect society was. Now, I don't believe our society has ever been perfect. I don't believe in a Garden of Eden story that um, we're trying to move back to. But I do believe that I have a place in this tapestry and it is my job to reweave my section and that my section is different than everybody else's section, and I have total responsibility um, over mine. So I think my purpose in life is to kind of define and discover what my t part of the tapestry is and figure out the best way to reweave mine as I help others find and discover their parts of their tapestry and reweave theirs. Very interesting. That was, that was a lot better than mine. <laughs> so, Nick, what is yours? <laughs> uh, I would just quote... Um, Damn, I know the really. I know Is it a the band. <laughs> no, it's um, it's Giacco Gentle. Into that good night, old age should burn and rage at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. But I'm trying to remember the author, um, and I'm mad that I I, I want to say it's like Tom Thomas or something. 
Please hold. Pending. Pending. Uh, it is... Dylan Thomas? Dylan Thomas. Dylan Thomas. Dylan Thomas is Do Not Go Gentle. I think that whole poem. I was going to get a tattoo right here that said Do Not Go Gentle. Yeah. And then my dad said you will regret it. So in my mind there is a tattoo that says Do Not Go Gentle. All right. So I think that that could be really interesting. I think a, a next podcast topic would be either what are the ingredients within a red pill. Mm. Um, I think that could be an interesting conversation. Or I think that concept of raging into the night is a really interesting one as yeah. far as how we live our life because I don't want to go raging into the night. Ooh, interesting. Like, I would like to go quietly into the night. Right. And I want to respond, but I now it's... And Spence, uh, this time, Nick leaves us with that part here. With that, you've been watching uh, Blacklisted Remarks, the video edition. We, we apologize for any looks. Um, one more. Uh, you can find more over at blackrealestateremarks.com. Is that a thing? No, we don't have a website. We have a YouTube channel. Oh, yeah, which we don't have access to. So right. join us on our unaccessible YouTube channel. <laughs> My name's Nick Stumphauser. I'm Spencer Fields. Signing off.